And today we'll be looking at the matter of the cities of refuge in God's law, their function in God's law. And so in order to do that, let's turn first of all to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35, verses 9 to 34. Numbers 35, verses 9 to 34, followed by Deuteronomy 4, 41 to 43. The book of Numbers is telling us the testimony of what actually happened in uh, time, uh, in real time, And then Deuteronomy is Moses' reflection, his sermonic reflection uh, there on the plains of Moab on what had taken place earlier. Numbers 35, beginning at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge. That the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avengers, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give them which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. But if he struck him down with an object so that he died, with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. (coughs) Or he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred, or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died... The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone, and without seeing it, dropped on him so that he died, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger, according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him 
to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. And now will you turn to Deuteronomy 4. Verses 41 to 43. This, as I said before, is a sermonic reflection. It took place later on as Moses was recalling these things to the people of God. Then Moses set apart three cities across the Jordan to the east that a manslayer might flee there who unintentionally slew his neighbor without, without having enmity toward him in time past, and by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau for the Reubenites, and Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. When you think about Moses in the wilderness and Moses at the end of his life, it really is amazing how Moses in the course of his daily ministry for these 40 years could so masterfully shift his focus from matters of worship to matters of teaching to matters of civil administration to justice to prophecy to logistics, to crisis management, and any of a thousand of the other duties that he had as mediator of the Old Covenant. Moses was a Renaissance man before there was such a thing as a Renaissance. And you have to wonder, at least I have to wonder, whether 
this incredibly gifted 120-year-old man ever rested? Did he ever even take a nap? But of course, that's life with all of its responsibilities, and what we are reading here is actual history. There are no superheroes in Scripture. And this is not mythology. Marvelous as it is, Deuteronomy is just a record telling us how it all happened. The big picture is this. God's redeemed people are free at last. They are set free from centuries of bondage to idols and idol worshipers in Egypt. And Moses teaches them once more on the plain of Moab about what this liberty means for them and how it all came about that they are now a free people. They have, as the business now before them, as they're gathered there on the plains of Moab with the Jordan to their west, they're, they're facing west, they're ready to go into the land of Canaan. The business before them now, before they cross the river, is the social arrangement of their future together in that good land. How are we going to live over there in the good land? And in fact, uh, as we have seen, uh, their occupation of the land has already started. As they're gathered there on the plains of Moab, they have already defeated Sihon, of the Amorites. They have already defeated Og, king of Bashan, and the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassites, at least half of the tribe of Manassites, have already begun to occupy those lands east of the Jordan River that they've conquered already. So now they're gathered on the plains of Moab, and the first sermon that he preaches, the sermon that we have in Deuteronomy 1 through 4, this sermon is now behind them, and Moses is turning from preaching to the administration of his law. And then the second sermon, which is more on the law, begins at chapter 5. The law is going to be the theme of his second sermon from chapter 5 onward, just as uh, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 1 through 4 had been his first sermon about their history as a people. And in between the, the preaching of this first sermon on history and his second sermon on the law, in between is a period of time, like it's been a week since we were together and I preached to you last. There's this time in between the preaching of these sermons and he's turning now to the administration of justice. He's turning to naming the first three of these eventual cities of refuge, the three on this side of the Jordan to the east, designating the three that would be on the other side of the Jordan were going to be the work was going to be the work of Joshua and Eliezer the high priest. That was going to be, of course, because Moses wasn't actually going to go over there. He would die on this side. 
It was the work of Joshua and Eliezer to name the cities of refuge on the other side. Well, the purpose of these cities of refuge is clear from this passage here in Deuteronomy 4, and it is clearer still in Numbers 35, which is a bit more detailed. In Numbers 35, the Lord first directed Moses to make sure that these cities were set apart, that they were designated. He says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you, when you cross over, I'm not going over with you, I, Moses, I'm not going over with you. But when you cross over into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who's killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. That was the commission uh, given to Moses. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is that Moses gets right on this, doesn't he? He gets right on this matter of designating cities of refuge. The Lord had said, when the sons of Israel cross the Jordan, when the sons of Israel cross. But Moses' obedience leaned so far, far forward that he's halfway finished with that mission of naming these sanctuaries even before the nation without him crosses over. <clears throat> Which I think shows us something. It shows us that Moses' heart is obviously in this project. Much as King David's later was in the project of building the temple. David wasn't going to do it, but David did everything in his power to make sure that the resources were available to his son Solomon, whose job it would be to build the temple. It's just the same with Moses and these cities of refuge. Moses' heart is in this, and so he gets started early in designating these six cities of refuge. Now I'd like you to think with me through Moses' own life story Try to imagine why this might be. Why it might be that it would be so important to Moses personally that this not wait until the people had crossed over. The cities of refuge, the safe haven that the cities of refuge offer to unintentional sinners, these are a picture these are something of a scale model of life itself. Life itself. Life under grace. Life, not for the sinner who hates his brother, but for the one who makes a terribly uh, deadly but certainly unintentional mistake. These are cities for those who make mistakes unintentionally. As we do. As we do. 
Outside these cities, the sinner might expect only the cold steel of cold retribution. But within the boundaries, within the walls of these six cities that were set apart, within those six cities, the unintentional sinner might find due process, might find an impartial inquiry into the facts, and true justice. That's what you would find within the walls of those cities. And justice, of course, ultimately is the only sure ground for true safety, true security, both for the individual manslayer and for the wider society that refuses to let its passions run wild. These cities of refuge, therefore, loom up before Moses as an essential feature of civil society. But as I think about the life of Moses, I also tend to wonder, could it be that this institution also stirs within Moses certain memories? Memories of an Egyptian buried in the sand 40 years earlier. Memories of his own fleeing into the open desert. Not 40, but 80 years before. These things tend to stay with you through the years, these events of life. The death of that Egyptian, the slaying of that Egyptian, though it be unintentional, that is a life-changing event. And I think Moses' thoughts may have been, let no one ever go through what I had to go through all those years ago. Let no one ever have to spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. But of course, the cities of refuge aren't just a matter of Moses' preference based on his own hard personal experience, although it may not at first seem apparent. The cities of refuge are, in fact, critically important to a world under the Old Covenant. Very important. This for two very good reasons. First, they're important because true justice under law forms the solid foundation of this new society that God is calling out of slavery. True justice is going to be the foundation of that society. And secondly, they're important simply because accidents do happen. Accidents happen. The three cities that Moses selected on the east side of the Jordan, from south to north, the three cities are Bezer, in the wilderness on the, pla- on the plateau for the Reubenites, and Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Those were the three cities. Eventually, on the other side of the river, south to north, the people who do cross over, they were going to add Hebron and Shechem and Kadesh. So those would eventually be the six cities. Any Bible atlas will be able to help you to see how strategically those cities are placed across the land of Israel. 
they're not all bunched together. They're spread out. So that no matter where you lived in Israel, you might be able to get to the nearest city of refuge without spending more than one night on the road. Now let me point out four things especially significant about these cities of refuge under the Old Covenant. The first has to do with the condition of the sinner's heart. God is setting these cities apart as he does. It demonstrates the importance that he himself attaches to the sinner's motives, even the killer's motives, when he sins. So guilt isn't just a matter of fingerprints at the crime scene. Guilt is a matter of the heart, first and foremost. It's a, foremost. It's a matter of the heart. And a person's spiritual condition becomes clear either in his malice aforethought or in the unintended consequences of his innocent action. Motives count. The inner disposition of the heart outweighs, actually outweighs, the bare facts of the case. And that, of course, is one of the things that makes criminal justice so involved, so complicated and complex. Because it takes due process to get to it. It takes due process to get to justice. It takes an investigation. It takes interviews. It takes careful listening to the accused. Biblically speaking, you may in fact be guilty of murder by hating your neighbor without actually ever spilling a drop of his blood. Do you know that? Jesus said as much. You can be guilty of murder by hating your brother without ever touching him with any iron, stone, wood, or whatever. But the other side of that is also blessedly true, that although you may have accidentally taken a life, spilled blood, accidentally, unintentionally, without that malice in your heart, God will not have you called a murderer. And he will not have you treated as one. David didn't always get it right, but he knew the difference between true guilt and true innocence. And he sings in the 139th Psalm, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way within me and lead me in the everlasting way. The cities of refuge show us how much inward motives matter to God. Now, the second point is that these cities show us the hurry that we're in, or we should be in, to find safety. When something like this happens, These cities remind us of God's mercy and its nearness 
to us. We poor sinners are creatures of time and space, and sometimes we have very practical, pragmatic needs to overcome both of those, both time and space. We need to make haste to get to safety. Although the sin was unintentional, the death was unintentional, the sinner still has to flee. And the clock is ticking. Why, you may ask, does the unintentional sinner have to flee? He has to flee because some family somewhere has just been robbed of a loved one. Some wife just lost her husband, some child, her dad. Some families just lost their income, their security, some, um, some other facet of their heart. It's been taken away from them. And so there is appointed some family avenger who is out there on an errand. And the errand is one of retribution. Remember Genesis 9-6, Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Families had avengers when a member of the family was killed. So if you are the, the manslayer, the unintentional killer, time matters to you. And when you're involved in such an accident in uh, San Antonio or Bryan or Houston or Dallas, uh, it would be a cold comfort to you if your city of refuge was in Jakarta or Winnipeg or uh, Rio de Janeiro. Those wouldn't help you all that much. The cities of refuge need to be reasonably close by. Because when you need to get there, you need to get there. And you need to get there fast. So as a matter of mercy, these cities are, as I said, strategically located throughout the land of Israel to serve the whole people of God. East of the Jordan, west of the Jordan, north and central and south. Third, these cities show us something about how God honors competing claims. They demonstrate how God sovereignly settles under his law the rival claims of justice and of mercy. Now, when you think about the cities of refuge, and when I think about the cities of refuge, it is unlikely, I think, that mere men trying to set up a new commonwealth under a new system of laws, would ever have been able to figure out this matter of the cities of refuge. We wouldn't have figured it out on our own. I mean, to protect the interests of everyone involved in such a terrible turn of events, to protect their interests, is this a method, the cities of refuge, is this a method that you would have thought of? I wouldn't have. Wouldn't have occurred to me. Which points to the fact that uh, men and nations need God's guidance and help. If you or I had come up with some way to resolve uh, the differences, the conflicting interests at play in a situation like this, 
um, we would have come up with something far less suitable. We need God's guidance. We need God's help in justice and its administration. Left to ourselves, mere men always, always, always fall off the tightrope one way or the other. We'll either want blood for every injustice that we experience or else we'll take the easy way out when we're sinned against and we'll say, oh, that's all right. That's okay. doesn't really matter. The problem is it does matter. Life does matter. Life is important. Families are important. Motives are important. These cities of refuge protect the innocent while still upholding the absolute sanctity of life. They honor all the legitimate claimants in such a case. Fourth, and very importantly, these cities of refuge drive home for us the point or the, the practical social importance of the high priest. The practical social importance of the high priest among God's people. Not only in the day-to-day ministry of his life, but even in the fact of his death. In fact, especially in his death. The death of the high priest was not just a changing of the guard. The death of the high priest didn't just result in the changing of the name of the, the high priest's office door. It was something significant because the death of the high priest ushered in a new era. The death of the high priest ushered in a kind of a jubilee. So, men who were long shut up in their cities of refuge, they were sinners because they'd killed somebody, but not intentionally so, not willingly so. Upon the death of the high priest, they might now at last go free. And what about the other side? The high priest's death constrains the avenger of blood to understand something. The death of the high priest constrains the avenger to understand that the statute of limitations on his grudge against his loved one's killer, that statute of limitations has just run out. And it is time to quit camping out there by the gate of the city, watching for that person, that killer, to come out. So, to the avenger of blood, the family avenger, the death of the high priest meant, was to understand, strike the tent, pack your bags, It's time to go home. The high priest has died. Call the whole matter settled. It's time to go home. You go home. He goes home. 
the matter settled. It would take the high priest's death to do this. Sin and its consequences, even unintentional sin, these aren't matters that men can fix simply by the decree of some office holder. Because the wages of sin, as Paul tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. The avenger of blood exerting himself for the loss suddenly inflicted on him and his family, he might catch the killer and lawfully exact life for life. He might do that lawfully. This isn't something new with Moses. As I mentioned, it goes all the way back to Genesis 9, verse 6. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for the Im- in the image of God he made man. And so now the high priest, who is the man officially set apart as mediator between God and men in Old Covenant Israel, this man dies. Now the high priest, of course, doesn't die for the sins of others. That's what the sacrificial animals are all about under the Levitical system. This mere man, the high priest, died because he was a sinner. He died because he was of the line of fallen Adam, and the high priest's death was inescapable. And yet, the events of his own death officially set in motion, they prefigure the coming death of a high priest whose death would spell actual release from sin. Actual release from guilt. Actual release release from a lifetime of running and hiding behind the city's walls. I wonder if you know him who by his own death in these last days of history, has taken away all the actual guilt of unintentional sin. I wonder if you know the freedom that comes, the freedom from running, the freedom of going home at last, the freedom that his atoning death offers you. Jesus Christ our great high priest, has died. And you are free. But once again, let's look at this from the other side. From the other side, I wonder whether you know the freedom that the death of Jesus Christ offers you, the avenger of blood. Freedom from your long-cherished grudge. And I know, I don't know you all equally, but I know you all because I know humanity. And I know that I can with confidence say that somewhere along the way, someone 
has hurt you. Someone has hurt you badly. Someone has robbed you. Maybe someone has taken the life of a loved one unintentionally. Someone's hurt you. Someone's done you terribly wrong. I want you to take this to heart, friend. I want you to turn it over in your mind that the high priest has died. Jesus has died. He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. So the book of Hebrews tells us. He's died. So sinners are set free from our worst days and from our worst deeds. We are free at last to go home to our inheritance. And that, my brother, that, my sister, includes you, the Avenger. In the name of Jesus Christ, I invite you now to let it go. The high priest has died. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we have been in straits. We have been in tight spots. We have been in distresses of our own making. For we are sinners. We thank you for the way of escape that you've given us in Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been tormented and weighed down and burdened with grudges, resentment for the wrongs done us, the ways we have suffered loss, we pray that you would give us the grace to let it go, to cast all of these burdens upon our Lord Jesus Christ, who has died and risen again, that we and him might walk in newness of life. How we thank you for the hope of the gospel. How we thank you for the transforming nature of it and for the work of your spirit as you apply it to our hearts and lives. Teach us to be gentle toward others. Teach us to be forgiving be humble in seeking forgiveness. Teach us to be as our Lord Jesus Christ, gentle. Thank you that his ministry, in the course of his ministry, the smoldering work, uh, wick was never extinguished. Thank you that he has always supported the weak, that he does support the weak, that he provides a place of safety for us. Grant that he would be our all in all in this life and that which is to come. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.